this episode, we are joined by Dr. Jared Matus, an expert on teaching and learning using digital technology. He's both a consultant, running trainings and seminars, and is also a teacher himself. Hi, how are you doing? I'm good. Great to be here. Thank you. Thank you for joining me. Wars are good for bullet makers. Surely this pandemic means you're in high demand. It's true I'm in high demand, although I like to think, you know, wars are also good for the folks who make band-aids and, you know, hospital beds. So I like to see my role a bit more like that. So tell me, what are you doing? How are you spending your time and how are you helping people through this period? I mean, it's been a really interesting last, uh, I guess it's about six weeks. On the one hand, there's all these really you know, trying situations locally, globally, but within, within all this, there's, is actually, it's the work that I'm, that I really enjoy doing, which is partnering with, with teachers to reflect carefully on what they want to teach and how we can effectively teach it and connect with their students. And of course, now, on the one hand, the challenges are even greater than before, but there's real willingness, I think, from, from every single educator I've spoken to to figure out what's it going to take to be able to teach this lesson, this unit, to connect to, to, to support our students in a way that previously, you know, I've, I've been working with teachers and sort of specifically with technology for, for a number of years. Some were a lot more interested than others in what I had to say, but all of a sudden, everyone's really interested in what I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> Where were you when I was sitting alone and no one would talk to me in that quiet <laughs> corner, sticking their noses up at what I did, and now you're all knocking yeah. my door down? Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. There's sort of, you know, we, we've got the list of like, here, here's the fun tools and here's the secu- ways to, to think about security and so on. The urgency of the moment, especially in the first few days or even weeks when we, the school I'm working with here in Boston, we, we went from deciding to close to being open online in, in about a week. And there was sort of this urgency. We had to decide what's really important of the many hours that we have the school, the kids in, in the school building. Which are the experiences? Which are the lessons? What, what are the relationships that we want to maintain? when we can't do everything and what goes to the top of the pile. And then once we prioritize, then it's just a question of what, you know, what tools do we need to make that happen? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But surely you're feeling a little bit smug right now. Surely. <laughs> so, some of the, the sort of the groundwork that was done before has sort of really paid off. Right. So, so the teachers who, who already in, you know, September or, or in previous years were already working with me and had already learned to use some of the programs for sure. They, they were head and shoulders ahead of the other teachers who had to start from nothing and figure out how do I open the program? How do I do this? I much prefer it would be under, uh, you know, other circumstances, you know, to, to be moving things forward. So people wouldn't be forced into having to deal with this stuff that they'd actually choose it out of their own free will. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, you know, there's the sort of the, the silver lining, I guess, in all this is that it, you know, the, the, it really forces this careful reflection on, you know, teachers. And you, you can't just get up, you know, they're not even getting up, but you can't be in front of your Zoom screen talking forever and ever to your students, right? They're going to, it's not good pedagogical practice in the classroom, but it's even more not a good thing to be doing over Zoom. So it's kind of like, what's important about what you what you want to teach? And what are the ways to engage the students to keep them motivated, to keep them on task? Everything that's best practice 
in the classroom is also best practice for, for the online classroom. Students need to know what's the goal. What, what are you trying to teach? They need to know what are the expectations of, of what they should be doing. They need to know what's the plan for the lesson. And good teachers were sort of already doing all that in their classroom. In some ways, the, the online environment is less forgiving. So if you don't make clear to your students, here's what we're doing, here's what how you're going to do it, now go do it, now go reflect on what we did. If you don't do that, the students are lost. And, and that can happen a lot quicker than if you're in the in the room, you can kind of find ways to, to engage students, you know, to, to make up for maybe not not explaining things clearly at the beginning. This is hard work for teachers. I, the number of teaching hours, we, we've reduced our school day. You know, every teacher I speak to says they're working harder than they've ever worked before. Mm-hmm. Just to get to that basic level in terms of, you know, preparing for their lessons is just a lot more work than the preparation that they were doing before. Yeah, well, to, to prepare their lessons, to follow up with the students, to find ways that to, to kind of keep your your pulse on the mood in the in the room is a lot harder to do. So, so it might mean that the, the teachers are following up more individually with students, or they or they're they're having the students either write or make a video and post it. Especially with the younger kids, we do a lot where they they respond to the prompt from the teacher by recording a little video. Mm-hmm. If it's a class of twenty students and every student is posting ninety second video just to to hear what each kid said, that's you know that's thirty minutes. Mm-hmm. I was speaking with the teacher this morning who said that the program we use seesaw is the digital portfolio program, and the uh, first grader the the recording limit is five minutes. And she said this one student got to the, was getting to the end of the five minute and, and the student said, Oh, I'm almost out of time. That's okay. I'm just going to post another one. So she posted three. So it was a 15 minute post that the teacher had to, had to listen to and then approve in order to be on the website for everyone in the class to, to also listen to. That's kind of the minimum that this teacher needs to do to stay on top of all of it. You know, it's very time consuming. Plus there's kind of, you know, teachers want to, want to do this well. And there's a lot, there's a lot out there, a lot of resources and tips and suggestions to sort of wade through that and figure out, am I doing this right? Is someone else doing it better? You know, how, how do I help the kids log in? There's a lot to figure out. Mm-hmm. A lot of it is just sort of treading water. We're not necessarily teaching new content. There, there's a lot of working on the skills that were already in process when, when we had to leave the, the school building. You know, the, the teachers are doing some continuing with curriculum, but, but a lot of adjusting expectations of, of what's possible. Maybe also there's an element that the kids are more needy in these uncertain times. Well, the kids and the families, and, and I think we, you know, we educators always sort of partner with the parents around the kids, but it's sort of indisputable now that, you know, we have a partnership and families are experiencing the stress here in, in all different ways. So especially with, with some of the younger students who require more from, they're not able to independently log in and figure out what to do and, and so on. So it means that the parent needs to be with them while they're doing this. 
you know, and the parents are also trying to, to you know, one or, or two parents in the house are trying to work while also helping their kid. We kind of need to find ways to to support what's going on in the home in ways that's both, you know, helpful to the educational goals, but also just make sure everyone doesn't, uh, you know, doesn't lose it goals, mm-hmm. which which are sort of equally important. Mm-hmm. I actually want to ask you, uh, what's the situation in terms of the recompense for the teachers? Because I know in Israel, uh, the teachers have been uh, expected to do lots and lots more hours and they had to struggle and fight in order to get paid for the extra time that they were doing or for any other time that we're doing and they're expected to do double and to be in school. And to, like now, you know, the teachers are going to be you know, doing online uh, with their students and also going to school in order to in order to split the groups up of students that are able to go into school. And there's certainly a, an, an amount of exploitation that's going on in terms of uh, the teachers. And I'm wondering how they're getting treated in the States right now, in the public school system. Yeah. So I, I was going to say that there's, you know, there's huge disparity. The pandemic has sort of exposed the, the underlying inequities in society that were already there. But they're, but they're even more pronounced. For the most part, most of the, most of the private schools are sort of up and running, you know, and they were able to work things out, you know, so, so that the teachers are, are working hard, but sort of not overburdened and so on. Public schools, it's a much more complicated story with the teachers union and the school districts figuring out what's, what's possible. Not, none of the contracts clearly were designed for online learning. My understanding is what it took a, a lot longer for the public schools to get up and running. There's a lot less of the uh, synchronous sort of live teaching from teachers. It's a lot more one or two class meetings over the week and then a pile of do-it-yourself work for, for students. In terms of what, what that means for the, for the teacher over, over the course of the week, I'm not entirely sure what, you know, if, if they're also checking in with, with students individually and things like that. I know, and again, this, this is sort of us at the, the Jewish day school to private school. We had a few days that were professional days where, where school was closed before we went into the online learning. So, so we could do professional development with the teachers to get them ready for the teaching. We, we also, we reduce the school hours. We start a bit later, end a bit earlier. And also looking at the sort of social and emotional health of the teachers, we, we sent messaging out, out to parents that, you know, 12 to 1 is off screen time for everyone, for, for kids and for grown up. Don't email, don't expect the teachers to be emailing and also be respect, you know, ask the parents to be respectful of, of giving the teachers offline time in the evening so that they're not just always in front of a screen. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's take a maybe take a step back for a second, and I want to ask you to share in a few words uh, your philosophy with regards to tech and education. Yes, so I think technology has a tremendous potential to support teaching and learning, but it always needs to uh, follow from the from the pedagogy. So, so teaching and learning comes first, and technology is sort of in the teacher's toolbox. The most important work that happens are the decisions that teachers make about what technology to use and how to use it in order to support the teaching and learning. Unfortunately, it, that approach is a little counter to the dominant viewpoint. And there's a lot of companies who, who see big dollar signs around uh, ed tech. 
and they're not necessarily being led by educators. So kind of similar to the textbook publishing, you know, industry, there's now the ed tech app industry where they're looking to get, get the applications into the classrooms. The decisions aren't always being done by educators who understand the potential of the technology to, to actually support the, the teaching and learning. You know, the mobile devices, the tablets or phones have amazing potential in terms of multimedia. In particular, you know, thinking about language learning, you want students to be listening to the, to the language and then practicing as much as they can. So, so the idea that, you know, kids and really all of us are really engaged in making movies all the time, right? Posting on any social, that's great. If teachers can think of ways to use that to support learning the language and, you know, it doesn't even mean having the kids on the app, using the fact that, that it's really easy to record video and audio is something that has, that has tremendous potential for, for learning, but it's up to the teacher to understand why that, why that is useful and interesting and supports the learning. It's not because there's this app that exists and it does this cool thing, but I'll, I'll give you an, an example of, of a project that a fourth grade Hebrew class that I'm working with, every spring they, they create a tour of Boston. Each group gets a different site and they'll do research and they'll prepare a presentation about uh, a stadium Fenway and the Boston Common and, and so on. The unit culminates in actually going to each of those locations and they spend the day speaking only Hebrew and they get to be tour guides of those locations. So we, cl- we clearly can't do that now in person, but technology actually gives us some really interesting ways to Ki'ilu do the like virtual Boston tour. I was meeting with the teacher this morning and, and talking about ways that we can have the students record the video of them. And then probably using, it's called Google Tour Creator, we can create, using the Google Street Map images, we can embed the videos of the students talking and create this tour that the students and their parents and anyone will be able to log into and hear the kids speaking Hebrew because the teacher has this vision that the kids are, you know, speaking Hebrew about locations in Boston. And this whole project is going to give them more opportunities to, to have those conversations. We're using the technology to, to sort of record the Hebrew and, and facilitate that interaction. The technology comes after we already have the idea, you know, the learning goals and the activities that we want the students to be doing. If I understand what you're saying, I'm going to put it into my own words. What you're saying is that the technology needs to be used as a means, as a tool and not take over and become itself a value in and of itself. Absolutely. It's a tool in the teacher's toolbox. And, and the decisions that the teachers make about what to use and when to use it are what make the difference much more than if you use this, this app or that app or this, you know, this device or that device. That matters less than what, what the teacher is going to do. And it's sort of even more so you know, now in, in this crazy online learning situation that the difference between using Zoom and Google Meet, you know, there's, there, there's a few little differences, but basically they're both video conferencing programs. And what's actually going to impact the learning is 
what the teacher does with it. The, the thoughtful teacher is going to use any video conferencing pro, you know, program and come up with the interesting lesson. And the actual program will sort of matter less than, than the teacher. Mm-hmm. No, just also just picking up on something you mentioned before about, I don't know, capitalism in the education system. It sounds to me like, you know, when there's a sniff of an opportunity to make a few bucks, what you're saying is that the companies are now hard selling uh, education tech without necessarily having the educational pedagogic knowledge or desire. It sounds like um, that maybe one of the challenges is also trying to sift through the 60, 70, 80, 90 percent of crap technology in order to get to the stuff that's really good and useful and it's not full of ads and, and, you know, the kids log on and all of a sudden they're being sold sugar and whatever it is, corn syrup. Yeah, it's all, it's a huge market. And, and in some ways, it's also it's not even clear exactly what the market is or when it is. Right. On the one hand, there's no way that kids should be exposed to ads during class and during a lesson. That seems pretty clear to me. To you, but does it does it happen? Oh, absolutely. Because, because there's such a rut, you know, that everyone wants something for free, right? Especially teachers, especially in a crisis. We don't, we don't want to be asking our, our school or our district or whoever to buy the membership. Let's just use the free version of whatever. And then you get the ads. Except I actually, in some ways, respect the, respect the ads more because at least you know how the company is making money. Fair enough. Unless you're using a, a program or an app created by a nonprofit or a university, and there are some, there, there are some great ones that are specifically created by nonprofits, but most of the stuff we're using are, are made by companies and, and they're in business to make money. But if the students or the school are not the, um, consumers, we're actually the product and what they're selling is our data. And in some ways that's, that's even more dangerous, right? Google Suite, which is in, in all these schools, we're training our students to become lifelong consumers of Google products. And the way Google makes money, the, the reason it's free to use your Gmail or to, or to search on Google is because they sell the ads, right? That the data they're collecting from all of us and now all our students is the product they're selling, you know, they're, they're selling our data to other companies. <laughs> so when, when I'm working with teachers, I sort of encourage that, that, you know, that there are a number of companies where, you know, you pay $5 a, a student per year, or you buy the, the $100 school, what, whatever the membership is, I often prefer that than sort of a free product because a free product Never is free. not actually free. free. Mm-hmm. You know, the issues with data and privacy, especially with children, are serious. And most most schools don't pay enough attention to them. And even more so now, like with, you know, the kids are logging in to the class from home, right? So so they're in their in their bedrooms often. So these companies have access to our students' bedrooms. It's frightening. It's totally frightening. <laughs> and often we're not taking the time to sort of think that through sort of carefully. It might be okay. You know, we might say, put your camera in a way so you're not giving away anything personal and know that this is happening. But, you know, and then when class is over, you know, put the personal picture back on the mantle or something. You know, we're moving so quickly. We're, we're not 
paying attention to these things while they're sc- scooping up all the data. We have a um, an eighth grader actually who who's incredibly you know fascinated by all this and is reading through the consent agreements that everyone clicks on and no no one ever reads and was pointing out the first time we we got our school up on Zoom Zoom hadn't really been intended for you know for children and and there's all sorts of protections for kids under the age of 13 edtech companies working with kids on excuse me under 13 have to follow all sorts of specific rules and it wasn't clear that Zoom was doing that they were sort of getting around it by having any user check a box to say they were over the age of 16, which meant from their end, they were sort of covered. But they, I mean, they've been playing catch up. And, and now my understanding is that it is kosher and they found the legal wording that does recognize that younger kids are on it and the, and they're committed to protect the privacy and the data and, and, and so on. Yeah, the worst stories of, uh, you know, people jumping onto class calls naked and all sorts of things like that and I think they uh, they managed to tighten the, the security of the actual software um, you know they introduced the waiting room and they introduced other things but they were you know they were doing it on the run you know yeah. as they were going along realizing what the problems were and trying to fix them reactively yeah well they went from I think it's 10 million to 200 million users in like three months they, they made a few mistakes or took a few shortcuts along the way and and I think you know on the, on the one hand you know they, they you, we can say they weren't thoughtful enough and we went too quickly but but I think this sort of from from the angle of innovation you know a lot of what happened you know, th- even thinking specifically the teachers I've worked with, we were able to move them along in their teaching practice in like a few weeks, way more than, you know, in the years that I'd been working with them previously. And I think because we were able to keep our sort of keep our eyes on the prize in terms of understanding what what was important to us as teachers we were able to learn the specific tools that the teachers needed and even more so reflect you know like i i remember that the first week we did this i was checking in with each of the teachers sort of after the lessons taking notes and then trying to to circle back to sort of here's the lessons learned a third grade teacher realized you know if you do this everyone on our on the faculty should learn this trick and the kindergarten teacher noticed, here's how you mute everyone at the beginning, but then unmute them, give them a few minutes to say hello, and then start your lesson because they're sort of starved for that that interaction. And that kind of learn, learning on the fly that we did, I, I think, was, was sort of necessary and we made a few mistakes, but but it allowed us to... The analogy I, I told the teachers was was like, we're, we're kind of building the airplane while we're in the air. Mm-hmm. It's like crazy and high risk but you know you kind of have you have no option but to figure it out well the academic is going to have a field day writing about this and researching this and understanding how human beings and education and etc etc we're learning on a sort of fast track learning of how to deal with a very very different situation that we're all used to yeah yeah. And it's also, it's sort of, it's all at scale. Like they're actually online learning wasn't invented in like March of 2020. You know, universities have been gradually doing more and more of it for 
for well over a decade. And in fact, even some, some of the international schools, I spoke with someone who actually said he, he was working for one of the international schools in Israel in 2004. And they were worried that as, as sort of tensions in the Middle East were, were heating up at that time, they were getting ready to close some of their campuses and various points. And they wanted to be able to, to keep school running because they knew they had you know, at various locations, and we're anticipating this would happen more and more often. And, and even then, you know, they were starting with, what can the teacher do? How do you how do you make a lesson? What can students do to what work can they do? We're doing everything we can now. But there are people who've been thinking about this for for quite a while. Mm -hmm. Okay, I want to ask you for those that haven't, I want to ask you what tips you've got for teachers who are just starting their journey using digital teaching methods? So the first thing I think is, is teachers need to give them, give themselves permission to, um, to try their best. And that's going to be okay. The amount of content covered is it's not, it's just not going to be the same. The amount of content covered is not going to be the same. The relationships between the students are, are so important. And that needs to be the priority that the social emotional well being of our students is priority number one. I would also say teachers should not forget what they know just just because the platform is different and can feel so sort of unfamiliar, scary. Good teachers know what good teaching looks like and feels like the things that matter in the classroom also matter online. So student engagement, the teacher wants, wants to find ways to monitor student engagement. You, you want to find ways for, for students to, you know, to check for understanding. You want them to be able to ask questions. You, you want them to be able to collaborate with each other. So when you keep those things in mind, then you can look at the tech tools and you can say, if I want to know in, at the beginning of class how everyone's doing, is that on the Zoom screen, everyone gives me sort of a fist to five with their fingers, you know, how are you doing? Is it asking a question that everyone types an answer in the chat and then you can, you can get that? The same thing for, with the checking for understanding. If, if you know in your classroom you're going to end every lesson with with an exit card, right? Do something so the students can reflect on what they learned and let you know if they have any questions. In the classroom, that, that might literally be a card that they write an index card. You can end your sort of Zoom lesson with, once you know you want to do that, there's a variety of, of tech you can use. It can be in Zoom, it can be in Google, it can be in, in sort of other programs. The teachers who understand what's in, what's important and what makes the the lesson connect with the students, you want to make sure you don't forget that, and you kind of bring that uh, into the on, online platform. Yeah, and and the, the sort of you know just to get a, sort of into some of the the more technical things, there's there's also to think about the the difference between um, synchronous and asynchronous learning. So, so there's kind of what, what are the benefits of when do we want to bring our students all together live? You know, there's sort of on the one hand, it's, it's important, especially in the, in the isolation for the students to just kind of see the teacher's face and, and hear from the, hear the teacher's voice as well as the other students in the class. But on the other hand, staring, staring, uh, at a screen that the sort of just lit, meant to be listening to something for, for a lengthy period of time is not necessarily effective. So asynchronous learning, when students can be working more at their own pace, 
can be very beneficial, right? If, if a teacher has a certain amount of content, in general, I don't like to lecture, but if, the, but if there's something that, that, you know, a teacher just wants to be able to explain, that should probably not be a live lecture. It should be a video that that the students can can watch on their own time, they can pause and go through it at their own time, and then they can be coming together for the live session when they can be asking questions of the teacher. Okay, can you, uh, just to rewind, can you uh, uh, define, explain those two terms that you use for people that don't know what they are? So synchronous learning is, is when everyone's coming together at the same time. Asynchronous is sort of everyone at their own pace. And sometimes that's, that's, uh, called a flipped classroom. So the idea being that, that the, the teacher prepares the materials for the asynchronous lesson and the students access them. It could, it could be a video lecture. It could be websites or articles for the students to read. It could be assignments for the, for the students to complete either individually or to collaborate with, with other group members. And then the, the synchronous, the time together can be used more for problem solving or for asking questions from the teacher. And this allows the teacher to really focus on what the students need from the teacher rather than the teacher just uh, sort of pontificating while the students are clicking on other things on the screen and not paying attention. Okay. You've shared now some really interesting possibilities or opportunities. And I want to ask that question to you directly because it's easy to point out the drawbacks of teaching without physically being in the same room as your students. But are there any advantages that maybe people haven't thought of of this tech teaching? Well, I, I think, I mean, if we sort of generalize to, to think about, you know, not non-crisis situations, I, I think there are issues around uh, accessibility that this, in fact, can be more accessible. You know, if, if there's students who are unable to, to physically get to class, sort of in the previous semester had a student who, who was, for health issues, was unable to, to be in the building, and in fact was was sort of zooming into the class from home. I think there, there are also ways that the teacher can, can be planning lessons so there could be more differentiation. That, that students, once they've learned to take responsibility for their learning and to work more independently, which I think are skills that need to be taught, we just can't expect, especially if that's not what how they've been working before. But once students are able to um, access material and work at their own pace, I think that means that some can really uh, go in depth. Some can go, go a lot quicker if that's how their brain works, where other students can take the time to the time that they need without being pressured that Yossi is at the front of the class and he's already finished and I'm just starting to read the directions. And so and so is, you know, always answering the questions before I do. If the teacher plans the the online learning experiences with this in mind, I, I think there's opportunity to better meet the individual needs of students. Mm -hmm. The issue of accessibility means that all the students need to have a computer and need to have an internet connection and need to have the ability to, you know, an adult there to help them navigate those things as well, which is an issue certainly where we live. You work in a in Jewish education. Uh, you work in a Jewish school and teaching Hebrew. And I'm wondering, I'm wondering if there's something with technology and education that can specifically aid Jewish learning. There's 
it been an explosion of, of sort of resources for exploring Jewish material kind of e- even before this, you know, these past few months that Safaria is the website that has access to text in, in all sorts of interesting ways. But also think, thinking about sort of Jewish community or Jewish peoplehood, you know, yesterday was Yom Ma'ud. You know, we had school and, and what we typically do is we sort of, we pretend to fly to Israel in the building, school building, and we have, we go from class to class with different, sim, you know, simulating as if we're in Israel. So one of the things we did yesterday was we had each class got to have lunch with Israelis. And the way we did it was it was really live with Israeli families in Israel. They were having dinner. We were, we were having lunch. They got to talk, you know, the Israelis got to talk about, you know, what, what does Yom Atzmaut look like in Israel? And, you know, it was live. It was authentic. And it worked in a way that, that we never would have done if we weren't in this situation. And it might be something that we do more often now because, you know, why not? We, we can build those relationships and, and do those events that we might not have thought of before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that takes me nicely into the final question that I want to ask you. Even once we've gone back to our schools physically, um, if technology will continue to play a role in education in a bigger way maybe than it was before this, or are you expecting people will put it back in, in their drawer and it will be tech nerds like yourself that will you know be left alone again to fiddle with the technology? I, I mean, I think it, it's sort of indisputable that the genie's out of the bottle or Pandora's out, depending on <laughs> how you feel about it. The question is what, you know, what, what is going to be the impact and the influence? And I think there's, you know, two things that, that I, I'm hoping will be positive. One is that we now have all these teachers who, who have this experience doing it and will be able to see what's, you know, what works and what doesn't and be able to reflect on it. You know, I'm anticipating that we're, we're all so eager to be back in real community with people, right? To be able to be in the same place with people that I think we value, we'll, we'll be able to value that even more. Every time we bring people together, we, we now need to show that it's worth it for us to actually get in the car and go to the community, you know, go there and do it. And my hope is that we'll be able to, to plan better, more interesting, you know, we'll know the reason we're here in this building doing this is we're doing something we can't do on a screen. And I'm hoping that that means that we'll actually be able to, to plan more enriching in-person uh, learning experiences for when we're in person. And when we're not, we'll use the tech to, to stay, also stay in community. On that optimistic note, uh, thank you so, so much for joining me. It was really a fascinating, fascinating conversation. I guess it's sort of watch this space in terms of, you know, where this goes in the coming days, weeks and years and, and you know, really how it affects how we do education and how we see education. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you.